This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. It's that time of the month and we are ready for another podcast. It's Arjun here, Head of Research at Investigate. And believe it or not, we are one more episode away from Christmas time. So that's pretty crazy, Lee. How's it going? Good, good, good. Yeah, I heard on the radio the other day, 40 till Christmas or something like that. So yeah, it's crazy that we're here already. I can tell you where the year's gone. It's gone to seven in a row interest rate rises. That's <laughs> that's that's where it's gone. Um, that's obviously been on the mind of many. And I'm keen to hear about, you know, obviously what the RBA rate's done from your thoughts and just how things are tracking on the lending side. Yeah, so we're here in November, November beginning right at the beginning of the month. I think it was the second. Obviously, the RBA announcement came through and as expected, the RBA has increased the cash rate for the seventh consecutive month and that's taken the cash rate from 2.6% right up to 2.8%. So we obviously spoke about that last month and we did foresee that to come through another increase and it is a lower increase than the the fives for five consecutive months previously. And the other thing, I guess, you know, the question is, is like most people I'm getting um, asking me, clients, just friends, family, whoever, is how long is this going to continue for and how much <laughs> will it continue by? So in the announcement, the RBA did say a large part of the reason that the board has been raising the cash rate is essentially to return inflation, you know, so it's currently sitting at 7.3% and they're looking to return it to its target range of 2.3%, which we, we've all been talking about, right? And so people are saying, oh, it's, it's going to go for another six months. You know, we've talked, have our thoughts about it. We've spoken about that. And the RBA actually themselves, they said they do expect an increase for further months over the period ahead. They are obviously closely monitoring the global economy, household spending and wage and price setting behavior. But they said that, yeah, we're definitely to expect further increases going forward. Yeah, look, there's a lot of lag in the data that I guess they're looking at. And so... I spoke about it in our it was in our white paper that we released around Australia's housing fundamentals. In that particular white paper, anyone keen to download it's a free resource, investorkit.com.au. We touched on RBA's interest rates. And really the core thing I felt was that we can expect them to overshoot. And so when you've got, you know, so many supply-driven impacts, we've got inflation data, we've got lag data and many other areas that they're working off. And we've got a rental crisis that's contributing a health amount to this data as well. I personally feel that, you know, it's going to be lagged in terms of what they see. And obviously when they start to you know, keep putting interest rates up, which by the looks of it, they will continue to do, it will cause more harm than they'd intended to do. And mm-hmm. it just means that they might overshoot or I actually know not even might remove that word from my vocabulary. I'm quite confident they will overshoot. And a few signals that we look at are, are saying that that will probably happen in the early to mid next year. So it'll be interesting to see what comes up. I think on that note of cash rates, an interesting trend I always like to look at is also the savings ratio. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the savings ratio 
it's essentially, you know, the level of household sort of the balance sheet, the strength of it, when it comes to looking at the disposable income and consumption and looking at the savings that we're putting away, obviously that shot up heavily during the pandemic period. So just to give everyone a visual of this trend line, from 2008 all the way up to you know, 2020, this average of this trend line was hovering around 8%. Now, that savings ratio trend line from 8% shot up to a huge circa 20% come COVID because everyone just squirreled all their cash away, stopped spending, refinance booms, equities released. Also, we also considered um, all the government stimulus and everything like that. And then, you know, that started to get used as time progressed. And then we went into lockdown two. That was coming down from the highs of 20% down to about 10 to 12% and then spiked up again in lockdown 2.0 and went back up to 16 to 18% again similar reasons and then is now back at about 9% and by next month's release will be back at 8 so what that means is that if our cash positions are in line with where we were you know the whole time through that decade average almost of 2008 to 18 it does show that you know this increase in rates can't last forever because naturally as that line keeps coming down balance sheets are going to start to be depleted a little bit more and we start to move from super super strong household savings ratios to uh, below long term average household savings ratios now the household savings ratios is not a core component of the measure it is just one thing to look at amongst many others but i stick with the opinion we are going to see an overshoot just based on some of the metrics that we're looking at. Now, when it comes to the lending, it's interesting to see, obviously, you know, from your world lead, the lending has a direct impact with the cash rate because of the moving assessment rate. So now housing finance trends are also clearly responding to that 20, 25% reduction in borrowing capacities. What is the data telling us from September ending data for housing finance? Yeah, so... ABS data, lending indicators for September 2022 have been released and total housing fell by 8.2% to $25.1 billion. And this is after a fall of 3.4% in August. So for own occupier housing, this fell 9.3% to $16.8 billion. But it has remained 23.2% higher than pre-pandemic level seen in um, February 2020. And then for investor housing, this fell 6.0% to $8.3 billion, but has remained 59.8% higher than pre-pandemic level seen in February 2020 as well. So essentially, housing finance is higher than pre-pandemic. Yeah, so still still definitely higher than pre-pandemic, but a huge drop nonetheless. And that is definitely showcasing just that impact clearly from, you know, the huge changes in borrowing capacities and now the finance data is starting to follow. So it's all showing on some of the the price points of some of the higher price markets. It's clear across this across the country, the higher price markets seeing, you know, that obviously need a lot of finance to adjust in its play with with property prices as well, are starting to see that discounting occur. Uh, we've obviously seen data is quite lagged, like finance data. 
when it comes to looking back off earlier markets from say Feb to August, we definitely noticed what the price declines were were quite heavy in some markets like Sydney and, and Melbourne. And we are seeing even some of their surrounds and even more premium markets, some other areas starting to see that twist as well. So on the lower price markets though, we have seen from our side, Lee, a lot of you know strengthening in terms of just staying quite resilient and some even rising. I've talked about a few regions there, which we'll talk about in more detail later in this uh, section, but it's clear we know that finance and property prices move closely with each other, especially when we start to apply a six-month delay. And so we start to see these finance trends drop off. It is in line with the cooling off that we've seen as well. So it definitely makes sense. Now, when it comes to lending, Lee, obviously interest rates have seen a big jump. And you've been seeing a fair bit of inquiry at Hills Finance from people just wanting to look at seeing, hey, what's my rates now? What can I do with it? Can I move it? Can I get better rates? What's happening there? The conversation that's happening now is people are starting to feel the increase. Regardless of how much you earn, people are starting to feel the increase in their repayments. And so now more than ever, obviously, we've always spoken about that. It's a game. Property is a game of finance, but you know, it's more so now, especially with people starting, even ourselves, we're starting to feel it a little bit in terms of repayment amount. So that is the main thing. People are getting all their rates reviewed, even if it's just that with the current lender, obviously refinancing and recasting debt back over 30 years is really important to minimize those monthly repayments. And yeah, just making sure we're taking the best advantage of special offers and campaigns that are out there at the moment. And so with the recent cash rate increase of 0.25%, there are a couple of small lenders that have not passed that on. And obviously being a, running a mortgage brokerage, Hills Finance, we have access to 40 different lenders. Every lender is very different with their policies, product uptake in terms of rate. And this is important to know, right, is... How can we take advantage of that? So I kind of wanted to cover off some, I guess, campaigns or offers I'm seeing available. And these are across your smaller lenders. And it's good to know, especially if you're a multi-property owner, because I'll, I'll explain why it would be very, very useful. So as I mentioned, there's a couple of small lenders that have not passed that 0.25%. But these smaller lenders, they're also having a special offer where if you say you have owner-occupied debt, and you're wanting to get in the market for another investment or a investment, whether it's your first or multi, you know, it's another purchase for you, they will look at owner-occupier rates on both the, you see, the owner-occupier debt that you're refinancing, but also the investment finance as well. This is really important because, for example, right, I would say if we're looking at a 90% lend on a 550k purchase price at the moment, variable rates are sitting around that for, I would say for interest only variable around five and a half percent, maybe just a bit lower. Whereas if with this lender, you take advantage of the owner occupier rates on the refinance debt plus the investment debt, we're looking at rates in the fours. That's massive. That's very low in this time, right? And it just shows when you a have a balance between bringing over business that's owner occupier and investor. So they're kind of trying to like they're yeah. basically saying, "Hey, give us more of your wallet, and they we'll look after business. you better." Look, which makes sense, and, right? If- but they're doing that 
obviously, you know, with most lenders, they'll look at total aggregate lending, meaning like how much lending do you have with that lender? Is the loan to value ratios low? Like for example, 60% and below, they're going to honor some good rates, generally better than if you're borrowing above 80% in the lender's mortgage insurance territory, right? But in terms of even with that, an investor rate at lowest for interest only is rent in early fives, even if you got that good pricing. But owner-occupier pricing in the fours, and that's what this lender would be offering on investor debt. So that's quite important to know. Very smart. So that to me is actually showing someone value, not just for a product. Hey, this is, is uh, can't get that, or this is yep. what it is. It's more like, hey, hold on a minute. Because you've, you're bringing business to us, we're looking at it holistically and saying, yes. we want you to occupy and invest in mortgages, and we're going to give you extra value and love for that. Yes. But obviously, this is for certain loan-to-value ratios as well. They want a healthy balance sheet too. Yes. So it's a smart thing that some lenders are doing. They're essentially going, why don't we stand out as the, the rate giver in a good Correct. way? But we want to pick and choose the cream of the crop client in a way, right? Of course. So really, these types of lenders are doing it for loan-to-value ratios of 80% or below. And to be honest, these lenders are a little bit more favorable in terms of how they look at borrowing capacity as well, because they may look at actual loan repayments on existing debt instead of the assessment buffers like the major lenders would do of 3% on top of your actual rate or repayments that you're making. So these are a couple of favorable things. Rates continue to go up. One, getting good pricing, but also getting good borrowing capacity as well. It's really important. Awesome, Lee. And um, in terms of, I know before when the last refinance boom was in play, there was a whole bunch of thing like cashbacks and things oh, like yeah. that offer. They're massive what are you right seeing now. these days when it comes to lending cashbacks? So there's cashback offers, obviously, for refinance is going around for quite some time now. I would say not all, but there is a a big majority of lenders that are making an offer on this. I would say a couple of standouts is when lenders are offering cashbacks of, uh, what do you call it, for purchases as well as refinances. So, for example, you may see an advertised cashback of 2K or 3K or 4K. There's some lenders going anywhere as high as uh, 5K cashback even six cashbacks still at the moment, but very few. I mean, there, there's about a handful of lenders that are also offering that same cashback if you're going to actually purchase a new property or have a new loan and to, uh, have a new loan to purchase a property and they'll give a cashback for that as well, not just for refinancing. So double dip, huh? Lovely. Yeah, but I guess the important th- people think, oh, I've got four I'm going to go to this bank. They're going to give me, you know, 3K cash back per property. That's very, very rare. There's actually a couple of lenders that would do that. And they're not always the best for servicing and things like that. So really majority is per client. The majority are looking at cash back per client. So most of the time is yeah. something to be wary of. So really looking at it more holistically just to see not cashbacks first, but more so the scenario, the valuation. And Correct. then the interest rate and cash back altogether. But it does seem like obviously in a time where people should be reviewing finances, making sure that you know they can hold on to assets and feel comfortable, get peace of mind during any times when interest rates are rising. It just makes sense that they obviously reach out to brokers, people like yourself. Uh, how can people get in touch? Yeah, best way to, to get in touch with our team at Hills Finance is on the website. So it's hillsfinance.com.au. And then there's a uh, get in contact button and leave your details there. That's 
Simple as that. So one of our team will get on call and we can go through the options. So, but yeah, pretty much what I say is it's always three things that we really need to look at. Cashback is really important, but number one is policy. Each bank is very different around how they might look at income verification, employment history. Policy comes first because your scenario as a self-employed borrower might be very different to someone that who's just started day one into their new um, PAYG employment, for example. And then number two, those things are going to impact what your borrowing capacity is. And then number three, what is the product or rate on offer, but also cashbacks at that point? That's kind of the order of how we would prioritize which lender we would pick. Now, from an investor's standpoint who's on a portfolio scaling journey, lending reviews can help in two different ways. Number one is if you're optimizing the portfolio, just continuing to get the best out of it, maintain cash flows, that's when reviews like this with with you know yourself lead can make a big difference. But when it comes to scaling portfolios, even first priority for all of that is the way of valuations. Exactly. We all know lenders can be quite conservative in comparison to real value out there. We'll give you a scenario of just our own portfolio. We, we whenever we're extracting equity to go on buying sprees or anything like that, we'll always review equity across two to four lenders. And that's something that the team here does really well with. You know, when you've got two to four lenders, you can firstly see, hey, amongst the ones that look at my scenario and say it's going to work, what are they providing value in comparison to what the value is? Some will be way off, some will be close to it, some will be on point. And this is where you kind of mix and play your portfolio to get your equity out, to then have buffer, but then to also have growth and more properties ahead. So it's just powerful in having options and having a team on your side to do that because, you know, just in our scenario now, we had, we're doing an equity review. And with one lender, we're able to get, you know, six to 700K equity out to be able to put some buffers, plus also do some more reno for profit, and then also scale the portfolio further. Then with other lenders, we're seeing, you know, equity out 550. And that's almost $100,000 that, you know, they're not agreeing with across multiple properties, Mm -hmm. some even down to 500. So the key is you could see, you know, in portfolios of our size, that one one fifty two hundred k valuation differences, you know, just across a couple of properties combined, and then even more and more. So, definitely, that was a key part from our acquisition strength, and we're excited to, I guess, go on to buy some more properties this year as part of the plan from from the equity release. Now, Lee, in terms of um, the current conditions, we've obviously talked about the flow of money. Now, the flow of money is, you know, finance trends, it's cost of money, it's cash rates. These are obviously core early drivers, but we've actually been working on a white paper now, and this white paper has been all about supply. Now, supply is the opposite side here of demand, where demand flow of money plays a big part, but we want to talk about supply today for the deep dive in terms of this month's white paper. Now, for anyone tuning in, if you're after a free copy of this research report, uh, you can get it from investikit.com.au. Now, we've got Australia's housing supply crunch as today's white paper review. And this has just been released this week. And it's about 20 undersupplied regions that we've looked at across the country. And it's the release of our new created supply shortage score. So an indicator map that you'll be able to grab from there. So these are SA3 regions. We've basically been reviewing the actual supply crunch in play. 
this is really important to look at how that marries up with some of the demand and pricing changes we're seeing. And we'll kind of go through you know, what we're seeing here today and deep dive in you know, a little bit more. But uh, Lee, when it comes to our supply crunch, I know you, uh, you know, had to read through the white paper yourself as well. I guess, firstly, when you looked at that, did you notice anything in the city's uh, aspect of things? Like, it's definitely not a lot of cities that I thought would be on there. What are your thoughts when you first look at it? Um, there were quite a few regional cities, actually. Yeah, I mean, I thought uh, definitely we were going to see a few more sub-regions within the capitals, but the regions and the capitals had a, well, obviously a bit of both, but we actually found a lot of strong, strong undersupply in some of the regionals still existing. So, you know, we will give away five on this particular podcast, and then the if you're after the next 15 of many more regions, by the way, and the supply shortage score, you can just jump on investikit.com.au and download yourself a free copy. So Arjun, tell me what were the main causes that you saw or you guys came up with for the reason of this? Yeah, well, when it comes to the supply shortage, we've seen a few interesting data points. Firstly, we've seen a huge reduction in established supply. Now, before I go into causes, it's important to understand what we're seeing first. Established supply has been a huge declining trend since 2011. So from 2011, we've actually been looking at it from a populations and listings per capita trend. So we were looking at the total trends of listing, the actual population growth and levels in Australia, and then we created a bit of a list per capita. Now, what we've seen is this has just been heavily declining since 2011, and since then, it just hasn't turned around. I mean, there was a little bit of a recent uptick in recent times. That's a big increase over the current year, but it is still heavily below where it was in the past. Now, when it comes to the second layer of supply lead that we looked at, it was also the listings for rent. That's been massive. So the current national average of vacancy rates at 0.9% across many regions that we saw is huge. Like it's just so low that you know, it hasn't been lower since April of 2006. So irrespective of the demand changes on finance and irrespective of the price declines that we've seen in some areas across Australia and then also the other areas that have softened in its growth rates, we are in for a huge supply shock right now when it comes to rental data. And as it turns on the housing side, we're still heavily undersupplied. Now, when it comes to other angles of supply, new supply is another one, Lee. Mm-hmm. New supply still does not meet demand. Now, if all building from approvals in play were going to meet demand, then I would say, yes, we would have a healthy pipeline of you know, supply. But the new building that's happened has kind of been stuck. And all the supply issues from the resources to delays, the trades, the jobs, the cost blowing out have contributed to this. And also the sentiment around building as well has contributed Mm -hmm. to this. But that's been another element. Now, going into the causes itself, we've seen a few causes. Number one, we noted a lifted volume of net immigration and smaller household sizes. So Australia's immigration has obviously massively been surging since 1990s to 2010s. 
And for anyone to, I mean, 2010s is now pretty much. But uh, when it comes to the the surge in immigration, yes, there's been a temporary shut off, and now that's recovering quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But the actual trend of how much over we were from a you know actual migration level has been quite heavy. Now, when it comes to the net immigration, it doesn't immediately add it to households for you know for sale or demand on the housing from a buying perspective. It starts on the renting side, but that has obviously swallowed up a lot of you know the available supply in housing. Now, moving from that, household sizes as well as they come down and get smaller, we distribute the average household across more houses. So again, the take up of houses is greater as we spread it from that perspective. The household trend size has been decreasing subtly, but still important numbers as the population and time has gone on. So it means not only have we seen increasing population, but we've also seen more houses spread. The second thing was the difficulties in accessing new land supply delays and development approvals. So, you know, cities like Sydney and Adelaide have the natural beauty of the restriction with hills in certain areas, but really inefficient planning systems, rezoning processes have caused delays. And when it comes to, you know, the land developers accessing it, all the infrastructure around these land and areas to create it has been something that's been lacking in Australia for many years. Now, when it comes to other reasons, I would also put in the surge of regional migration. That has been a trend on the upwards since sort of 2016-17, but obviously exploded during the COVID years. So a lot of stock has also been swallowed up that traditionally wasn't getting the same love, but has as lifestyle changes and movements have happened since COVID. Lastly, I would also say that with all these regional migration and all this demand for Australian housing, all the growth in Australian housing, and as this has all come together, we've also seen extended hold periods. So, you know, data is showing that Australians are holding their properties for longer. Uh, essentially, across all major capital cities, we've been seeing this increase since 2008. After a little bit of a dip in 21, but most locations have been seeing that the holding periods have been increasing, and that's going to clog up stock. I always talk about stock mobility, Mm. and stock mobility has been something lacking in Australia. When it comes to stock mobility, just imagine with stamp duty, right? So stamp duty, there's been something called bracket creep, where if stamp duty, say, on a Sydney median house price of, say, 98K back in 86, was only around 2K, that was in the 1.75% bracket. Now, a Sydney you know, house priced at 1.3 mil, as an example, doesn't fall in that same bracket of 1.75%. It actually falls in the tax bracket of 5.5%. So now someone's paying stamp duty of you know close to 60K. And so we've recently started indexing stamp duty to sort of inflation rates at 2019. However, it's just come too late. So as a result, there's been lots of people who over time have held property looking at the cost of moving, capital gains, selling, rebuying again, paying taxes again. All of these things just disincentivize people from actually moving on stock or making changes because there's more monetary barriers in play. So you put all that together, you know, the construction, the you know, changes that we've discussed earlier, and of course, from the rental side, invest activity suppressed. That's a whole lot of 
you know, changes that really just have kept stock quite tight in Australia. So a lot of reasons. I can't put it, I can't put it as one thing. I had to go through a list of things and we go through the list of things deeper in this particular white paper. But the reason why there are so many things, and this is why many people fail to actually understand housing analysis that deeply is because it, it isn't just this one thing where you know, someone can go on Twitter and 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 make a a Twitter post like some of the the you know the crypto coins and it explodes in value. Housing has so many complicated going things going around. Where I've named seven or eight reasons here that you can go into detail on that white paper, just to really talk about the actual causes behind this all. So, Arjun, when I'm looking at this report, so you've listed the twenty undersupplied locations. Like when I'm looking at those areas, what does that mean? Is that a good area to invest in these 20 locations or what are you guys saying? Yeah, it's a good question. So firstly, this is a heavily supply-driven analysis. And so for capital growth to exist, it requires a healthy level of confidence for people to take action. It requires extremely low levels of supply and it requires a high level of demand in transacting for prices and rents to grow. So right now, across all these areas, from a rental perspective, vacancy rates are super low as one of the indicators on supply. Yeah. So you can just hand, you know, hand on heart say, how can you not see? So it's a tick from a rent rental return. Yeah. Rents are likely to grow. From a capital growth perspective, we've actually had a summary, and in this summary, we have the supply having six core data points, which one was towards the rent. And this makes up our supply uh, short score, or we call it the triple S. So this is newly released and it's a scoring system based out of five. And we've incorporated, you know, deep data analysis, backtesting, machine learning, waiting through certain algorithms to to really showcase where this impact is being held from different metrics. Now, we considered future supply, so construction pipeline. We considered established supply, so listings, trends, listing capita uh, in terms of population movements as well. We considered price pressure. We considered rental pressure, housing availability, and people movement. So from a scoring perspective, it's essentially where people are going, what's being built, what's currently there for sale, how much element of pressure is there for prices to potentially increase rental pressure and stock available for people. So you guys scored this from one to five, the closer to a five, the better. Correct. So a five was extremely low supply, high market pressure. A four was low supply, but increasing market pressure. Three was balanced supply, moderate market pressure. Two was high supply, lowering market pressure. And one was extremely high supply, low market pressure. It was uh, nice to see a New South Wales location, quite local to us on there, on this report. Penrith? Yeah, (laughs) Sydney siders. So for Sydney siders, it is not all doom and gloom in Sydney. It is a city of over 5 million people. That's right. Uh, Very important for people to realize to not overgeneralize one whole city as one market. We saw two regions in Sydney, actually, that produced some tight scoring, which was around the Camden region and oh, also yeah, the right. Penrith region. So for those out that way, uh, trends are still looking quite well-placed. It doesn't mean that it's you know going to rise by 20%, but it just means, and this is coming back to your core point, mm. what this means 
is that in return of sentiment, and if the moment demand comes back to some higher levels than it is today, these areas have strong fundamentals in their supply scoring, which means if they we use, you know, we've given away two areas. I promise I'd give away five for the rest. You can grab them from investikit.com.au. But uh, Barossa Valley was one region here, and we scored it 4.2 out of five. Mm-hmm. Its established supply was, you know, pretty well placed. It wasn't too low. It uh, wasn't too high, sorry. And when it comes to its rental pressure, extremely tight. Its price pressure was also very high. Its people movement wasn't as good though, and its future supply was okay. So not a lot of people moving to the Barossa. It's not not a hugely you know populations moving left, right, and center area, but future supply was okay. Not too tight. It wasn't a super low construction pipeline, but the established supply hardly any online, hardly you know stock being available from housing availability. Pressure for price was still pretty healthy, and rental pressure was very very tight. So. When you see an area like that and demand does come back in to higher levels, like people nationally from a sentiment level or interest rate cycle balancing out or flattening or even declining, lending changes happen and more lending becomes available. Areas with a very strong supply score likely to pick up faster and sooner when demand returns. So it's kind of one angle of an overall analysis. And if sentiment and demand returns to higher levels, these areas feel more upwards pressure because of how low their pipeline is. It's kind of like a an ostrich in the sand, right? Like, yeah. you know, you're head in the sand, you're looking down, you want to protect yourself, right? You, you don't want to do anything and times are tough or there's a lot of, you know, weak sentiment or Money's not coming your way from the banks. And as soon as some money starts coming your way from the banks, you look up and you go, oh, I'm going to buy there now. And there's nothing there. Reminds me of COVID yeah. when it first hit. Well, um, for those Sydney goers that, you know, are a little bit hesitant on interstate investing, Penrith was 4.5 and Camden was 4.7. My last question would be, because those are Sydney suburbs, they're quite high scored, Right. How would you compare those to, you know, your Barossa or, I I mean, are they still affordable type properties that you're seeing in those Sydney areas? So um, we can tell you, you're you're giving some goodies out for the Sydney (laughs) siders. We've got to remember, Lee, that there's a lot of people across the country here. So I need to look out for them. (laughs) Yeah. So um, Penrith and Camden, which are in these regions, now from an affordability perspective and a national level, they're not that affordable. But from an affordability perspective, on a Sydney level, they are very affordable. And you know, when it comes to that component, that could probably play a key reason as to why we haven't seen a huge uptick or high levels of housing availability. It still remains quite low. Mm. Uh, rental pressure is tight here, but many parts of Sydney are in that space. We actually just rented our property right recently in the Hills area. We we got forty. Dollars per week above asking. Yeah. Which so is nice. rent pressure from that end is healthy. But, you know, more importantly, Sydney aside, there are regions in this report from Sydney to regional Victoria, regional Queensland. Like, if we just give another look at location, we had the region of Tamworth sit at a score of four. So, and when you see the scores, we use it chart called a spider chart. It looks like a spider web. So you get to see some parts that are strong, some parts that are weak. Mm. 
Uh, I'm sure those who are into their data visualization will love checking this out. But when we have, you know, the spider charts or the spider web here, the good news is that you can start to see pros and cons. And that's the beauty of this analysis. We don't say everything's a five star. We say, hey, this is 3.8, this is 4.2, this is 4.3, because there's some weaknesses, some strengths. So Tamworth, for example, had a weakness people movement. There wasn't a huge sort of population versus, you know, um, list trend that was there. But other aspects, pressure, housing availability, established supply, future supply, rental pressure, yeah. all okay. really well. Yeah. And that's why it's still ranked a four. Now, other locations as well, we had uh, the location of Toowoomba. Actually, a few Queenslanders. I'm giving away more than five here. So Toowoomba, Bundaberg, yeah, Rockhampton, Cairns, South Region. So all of these locations scored between 4 and 4.3 out of 5. So, yeah, if you're keen to check out these 20 regions, there's obviously six core data points that went into them. They measure supply. So this is using our new metric of supply shortage score. And we could have made this report a top 50 SA3 regions, but it'd just be too much. So we thought we'd make it a top 20. And the reason why I say that is many parts of Australia remain undersupplied. So this is the key. If you feel like, hey, Arjun, does that mean you know growth is going to be the same as what it was last year? No, it requires a perfect world of all three things, demand, supply, confidence to all come together. But on a straight out supply analysis, these markets have an extremely healthy position. And that does mean that shouldn't, you know, should a greater level of demand return or should greater levels of confidence return, they have an ability to feel that pressure faster and at higher levels, which in turn impacts price pressure and price growth. That's the key here. And, you know, buying with low supply regions is such an important part because it will mean that you protect yourself as well when your market's more resilient too. So that's the core part of this white paper. We go through 20 regions. We go through core data points on these 20 regions that stood out to us. Uh, lots of interesting charts and new things that we're trying. And of course, our supply shortage score, which we've recently released, and we'll keep that as a frequent release as well. So if you'd like to go get that, it's investkit.com.au and it's Australia's housing supply crunch because, you know, it's definitely there. Rental vacancies, extremely low and many regions with their housing supply crunch, extremely low. But I guess the final point I'll leave everyone with is that we are seeing many other cities that are lifting their supply and are already at the five-year trend level. Sydney overall is one of them. Mm-hmm. Melbourne is also, you know, in line with that. But many other cities as well where listings are increasing rapidly. So parts of Brisbane have seen their listings increase super quickly. So this does mean that these trends can change and they can, you know, make markets weaker if the demand levels aren't there. But what all of these, you know, regions had in common is that even with the change, in some cases, there's still extremely tight supply levels and a trend from 2000 all the way till now has been occurring, which is why you and I are taking out equity to buy more properties this year because we definitely feel that as people wake up and look up again and go, hey, I want to get going again. When that time right, time's right, obviously the lending indicators are showing a lot of people aren't really moving their money along because finance constraints are in play. There are constraints. But when it sure. comes back, it does mean that these you, areas are tight. 
And but also if you are able to get the lending to do what you need to do, then essentially now is a great time to take advantage. Correct. Because if you've got a tight supply level and you haven't got the same demand and confidence out there, you can go and pick up a few assets, well, park them there. Competition. A little bit less competition. Yeah. There's still some competition because the supply inherently yeah. is low. Yeah. But it won't be as much as what I think there could be as lending returns in the future which will obviously take some time, mm-hmm. and as sentiment returns in the future, which again takes some time, when those two things re- recover, you want to be in low supply regions because yeah. those are the areas that people look up and go shopping and they can't find anything. Yeah, And that's what caused a lot of price growth. People couldn't see anything. Prices grew because people were competing over very small amounts of property. So this is the key and why we're all in and why we're looking at you know equity releases and things like that. So uh, I'd encourage everyone to obviously, with buffers and financial capacity in mind, consider how they can take advantage of a little bit lower competition in yeah. low supply areas. They, they do exist, and that's going to safety, you know, put a safety net around it. And the last thing from me is consider smaller tier lenders that will give you better pricing and borrowing capacities in the current rate market. Awesome. Well, signing off, if you'd like to reach out and have a chat to anyone in our team at Investicate. We have a few more places for new clients before we go into that Christmas break and closure. Um, we have had a lot of inquiries from our repeat clients reach out. So our spots are limited, but if you'd like to book a consultation with our team, it's investicate.com.au. This data is just a scratch of the surface of what we provide our clients at Investicate. But if you'd like just this data alone to, to make well-informed decisions or make you know, review of how you can kind of improve your analysis of property markets, jump on to investikit.com.au and on the white paper for Australia's housing supply crunch. Catch you soon. Game over.